at the Digital Editor for Biotechniques, I recently spoke to Mark Belke, the Chief Scientific Officer of Integrated DNA Technologies, about the current limitations of CRISPR-Cas9 techniques and the potential of the novel Hi-Fi Cas9 enzyme to resolve these limitations, as shown in a sickle cell disease-causing mutation. So what is your scientific background? What do you do now and how did you get there? I've been the director of research at Integrated DNA Technologies now for almost 23 years. And uh, my background prior to that was largely all focused in studies of areas of biology that in some ways relate to medicine. I was an undergraduate in biology at MIT and then did an MD-PhD at Washington University in St. Louis. Then I uh, went on to more medical training and did an internship and residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and then an endocrinology fellowship there also, followed by a, a postdoc in human sex genetics at the Whitehead Institute at MIT uh, with Dr. David page. From there, I was recruited to take over research at IDT, and our founder, uh, Dr. Joseph Walder, described to me this exciting concept of how synthetic nucleic acids were going to revolutionize medical diagnostics and medical therapies in the future. And that was something that was, at that time, back in 1995, relatively a new concept to me, and it seemed very exciting. And I thought, gosh, this like sounds like something I'd like to give a, a shot at see how it goes. I had never really envisioned that I'd be in industry. I I had always thought I'd end up in academic medicine. Uh, And I figured, well, you know, if this doesn't work out well, I could always go back. And now almost 23 years has passed, and it's been uh, extremely exciting. So what we do now, uh, obviously, IDT is uh, manufactures synthetic nucleic acids, oligos, DNA, RNA, genes, uh, gene pools, and the like. And so our research activities embrace all areas of oligonucleotide-based technologies that include synthetic biology, NGS, PCR, and functional genomics. And given my medical background, I've always had a a dear space in my heart for the functional genomics area, which can loosely be defined as that area where synthetic nucleic acids interface with living cells and animals. So that includes uh, antisense, RNA interference, microRNAs, long non-coding RNAs, and now genome editing. Please, can you just tell us a little bit more about your recent research? Well, the the recent research that was just published in Nature Medicine relates to our works to to improve the specificity of uh, CRISPR editing. In CRISPR, you start with interrogation of the DNA, you open up the DNA, a binding event occurs, and then cleavage can occur. And match and mismatch are significant, but they aren't the initiating event. And the predictions of stability of the nucleic acid hybridizations doesn't give you a great idea of what the off-target sites at risk are. You really have to determine those empirically. And some sites that have a single base mismatch won't cut at all. In some sites that have three or four bases mismatch cut at near 100%. And as a result, finding sites that are at risk for off-target cutting is difficult, and you have to empirically measure these by NGS methods. So methods that reduce the risk of having off-target cleavage are very important. And we looked at methods to modify the Cas9 protein that would improve its specificity. The areas that we've focused on are use of ribonuclear protein methods where the uh, synthetic components are provided directly into the cells and achieve a very fast on and a very fast off kinetics. 
such that you have high concentrations, you get cleavage, and then the components are rapidly gone. It's kind of like I call it a commando thing where the components come in, do their job, and get out, and don't leave much of a footprint. So if you examine the difference of off-target activities between plasmid systems and other sustained expression systems versus RNP, the RNP systems are always much cleaner. However, even with RNP, there are sites that still cleave off-target and are at risk. And especially if you're working in any kind of a research setting where you're going to make precision editing changes and study these effects for years, say in stem cells, then mysterious other effects induced by the genome editing event could really impact that research. Even worse, in a medical application, uh, unintended cleavage can lead to genomic rearrangements or other mutations in sites that could be deleterious and risky. And while no medical therapy is 100% risk-free, I think it's important when it's starting out in working in genome editing for medical therapeutics that you do everything possible to um, minimize risk, in other words, have risk mitigation. So I think that RNP methods are uh, preferable when they can be applied to medical settings. So what we wanted to do was to examine what, what methods there were to further reduce off-target cutting using RNP methods. And when we studied these previously uh, published mutants in the RNP format, we found that some sites, they worked reasonably well, but at many sites, they didn't work at all. And what the bottom line was, was that these mutants had multiple amino acids mutated, and the cumulative effect of these was to produce uh, Cas9 proteins that had reduced on-target activity. And this reduction in on-target activity wasn't apparent when you had sustained plasmid overexpression. The lower activity mutants did fine when you had that high level of expression. But when you use them in the RNP format, uh, th their cutting was much reduced. Instead of trying to do this by intelligent design from crystal structure, we went back to just doing random screens and developed a screening method wherein we could process a large number of mutants in E. coli using a, a dual target system for selection. And in this system, what we had was a toxin that had an on-target site. If the mutant did not cut this on-target site, then the toxin was expressed and the bacteria died. So this ensured that you had to have on-target cutting. At the same time, we had an off-target site put in a selection marker like chloramphenicol resistance. So if you did cut that site, then the bacteria died. So we put a quarter million clones through this strategy and came up with a number of mutants that passed the screen, not wanting to select for a mutant that was you know, specific for a single site, we then changed the on-target site and changed the off-target site and redid the screen, and then sequenced all the mutants that survived double screening. And from that came out with over 100 sites in the protein that were affected more than once in the screen, and made these then in forms that could be screened in mammalian cells and from that isolated a smaller number of mutants that, that worked well in mammalian cells. And after repeated testing of single and double mutants, uh, fell back on a, on a final mutant that uh, was only at a single amino acid, yet served to dramatically reduce off-target effects while maintaining high on-target activity. So we then enlisted the support of a number of different beta sites who are working in translational medical areas to see if it worked well in their systems. And uh, the Nature Medicine paper 
was a direct result of a collaboration with a professor, Matt Porteous at Stanford, who was applying the CRISPR systems to treat sickle cell anemia. So sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease is a devastating human genetic disorder wherein there is a single point mutation in the human beta globin gene. And right now there really is no effective therapy for this. And the therapy that's envisioned here would be to do an ex vivo stem cell therapy using the patient's own stem cells. So the notion would be to harvest stem cells from a sickle patient and then treat them ex vivo in the laboratory with the CRISPR system and correct the mutation and then reinfuse the cells back in the person. So the patient will be receiving their own cells so there's no risk of graft rejection. And if the genome editing event can be efficient enough, then this could theoretically cure the disease for that individual. Now, of course, there's you know two things that are required for this. One is that the editing event be uh, efficient enough that enough cells are corrected to impact the disease. And the second is that the process is specific enough that you don't have risk of undesired side effects occurring. And so the Porteous group was interested to see if our new mutant could be used to improve the specificity of the CRISPR um, correction reaction while maintaining its efficiency. Uh, Recall again, these are all done in stem cell culture outside the body in a laboratory using RNP methods. And so they applied our mutant protein in the system and found that indeed it worked exactly as we had hoped, that the on-target editing was at high efficiency, the gene correction event was at high efficiency, and the off-target cleavage was reduced 20-fold. So the off-target didn't go to zero, but a 20-fold reduction represents major risk mitigation. And as a result, uh, they are now in the process of of applying for an IND to do a phase one human clinical trial with this method, uh, and will be using the HiFi protein in the RNP phase of the project. So what are the key factors limiting the translation of CRISPR-Cas9 to human therapeutics? Well, in general, I think you could categorize these as efficiency and specificity. The hematopoietic diseases such as sickle cell, beta thalassemia, and other things can be addressed by treating that stem cell population. You can work in immunogenetics and immuno-oncology by producing uh, altered T cells, CAR T cells and the like, that could be used to treat cancers with ex vivo manipulations. And there are a variety of uh, research, translational research programs ongoing right now looking at the use of other stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells that could be used to treat other human diseases. All of these uh, cell treatments can be better performed if you can do some genome editing events on the cells prior to the, their medical use. So I see in the ex vivo area that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity here. Uh, of course, in any of these, you have to minimize the risk of off-target editing. And I think that the availability now of a HiFi Cas9 mutant that works well in RNP format will make all of these uh, approaches easier to do and safer to do. If you go into more direct in vivo therapies, the big issue is the same for all all medical therapies that infuse uh, that involve macromolecules, and that's delivery. Ex vivo, you can work on cells in laboratory methods with high efficiency. In vivo, you're limited by the delivery tools that can deliver these large molecules. And right now, liver is the easiest target to manipulate. But obviously, uh, with medical genetic diseases, 
uh, there's quite a few other tissues that will be of interest that are going to have to wait for better delivery tools to be developed. And what is the future potential for HiFi Cas9 in both basic science and therapeutics? Well, I, I think with what we've shown now in basic science applications, the real question ought to be why not use the HiFi Cas9? Uh, its efficiency is similar to wild type and the cost is very similar to wild type. If it reduces your risk of off-target activity, it's just a smarter way to do the experiment. In therapeutics, its use, I think, is going to hinge upon the delivery mechanism and how you're getting the uh, CRISPR components into the cells that are being targeted. For ex vivo methods where RNP systems can be used with relative ease, I think the HiFi ought to be the first choice for most people right now. Uh, for systems where you may have to rely upon expression, constructs such as uh, lentivirus or mRNA or other things, I think the experiments haven't really been done to fully address that yet. Some of the other mutants that have been described that are less active but even more effectively off-target limiting might work very well in those settings. And those kind of comparative studies need to be done before it's clear which is going to be the best Cas9 to use for which setting. And so what are the next steps for this research now? The obvious next things to do uh, are to compare functioning of the HiFi mutant with the other available mutants that have been described in these other formats with mRNA and with viral expression methods in the sort of the relative medical models. Beyond that, we are in, in my laboratory, we're very interested in performing additional mutation screens to add other improved functionalities to the CRISPR components. This can relate to not just Cas9, but also other CRISPR enzymes. For example, we're working extensively now with Cas12a, which has historically also been known as CPF1, trying to generate mutants of that that have expanded targeting ranges as well as higher activity. There's currently a lot of excitement surrounding CRISPR. Do you think that it's going to live up to its expectations? I absolutely do think it will live up to expectations, but I do have to caution that expectations must be tempered uh, with time frame considerations. People tend to get very excited about new technologies and then become dismayed when the therapies aren't there after five years. And if you look historically at the introduction of new technologies into medical applications, you know, five years is not enough. Uh, when, when monoclonal antibodies were first introduced, the immediate rage was this was going to really be a big thing for medicine. And then after five to 10 years, there weren't a lot, there weren't new drugs. People then said, oh, there's failed promise here. It didn't live up to expectations. But now look today, a lot of the most exciting new medical therapies are all monoclonal antibodies. Likewise, look at other uh, functional genomics applications. Antisense went for a long period where there were not any successful drugs, but now there's a number of successful drugs in late-stage clinical trials. And the, uh, the new drug that came out of Ionis and Biogen's collaboration for spinal muscular atrophy is nothing short of spectacular. Likewise, RNA interference was discovered in 1998, and yet the first medical therapy using it was finally approved today in 2018. So I think that all of the genome editing methods, whether it be zinc fingers, talons, CRISPR, whichever route you take, it's, it's the same basic concept, that these are going to have a major impact on medicine, but one must also be cautioned that these things take longer to safely introduce into medical therapeutics than many people have the patience for. And this will occur, but it's not going to have wide impact as fast as, as some people may be projecting. 
Brilliant. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I'd just like to say that this is an incredibly exciting field. And the things being done today with the CRISPR methods were several, were years ago, really in the, in the range of science fiction. Uh, and it leaves me extremely excited about the potential for the future. I'd like to finish by acknowledging all the many people that contributed to the studies that I talked about today. In particular, Chris Valkukas leads the CRISPR uh, Protein Development Group at IDT, and also uh, Professor Matt Porteous and his team at Stanford, uh, of whom Danny Deaver in particular I'd like to mention for all the work he did that, that contributed to these studies. Thanks again to everybody. Thank